Let's all stand together, Mark chapter 8. We'll see a little bit of, of that truth in this passage. Beginning in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you so much. And we're so grateful for, for who you are, Lord, and all the ways that you've shown up in our life. Lord, we are desperate for more of you, especially in this world that's so dark, all the chaos, Lord, it's overwhelming. But we know that you still sit on the throne. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will come and visit with us in a very real and personal way. Touch us, Lord, so that we can see. Speak through me. I'm a sinner. I'm only saved by grace. I'm not any better or smarter or anything else than anybody in this room or anybody that's watching online. They don't need anything from me, Lord. They need a word from you. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place today. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer something like this. Father, speak to me. I'm ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, we talked last week about blindness. Uh, our default spiritual setting is blind. That's how we come out. When, when mama unpackages us, we are spiritually blind. That's what the Bible teaches us. We also have an enemy, uh, the God of this world, who is actively trying to keep us blind. He doesn't want us to see God. He doesn't want us to see the light. He wants to live, us to live in darkness. And so by and large, our world is blind. I shouldn't have to convince you of that, especially if you've driven on the bypass anytime recently. should be pretty clear. People just, they have a hard time seeing. They're blind in so many different ways, right? So many different ways. I saw a news reporter recently, I think it was a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, she was in um, Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban were dancing around her in the, in the background. They've got the U.S.-issued uh, uh, armed rifles and stuff above their head, and they're, they're chanting something. And she says, they're chanting death to America, but they're actually very friendly. That's what she said. It's like, really? This is the world we're living in. Apparently, this is, this is what my understanding, um, I was reading this week, and I think Biden confirmed it in the, the speech that he gave, that apparently the U.S. is trusting the Taliban to run security for the airport where we're trying to evacuate citizens and allies. I think that is the plan. What? Right? This just, it seems like, duh, that's a terrible idea, right? But people are blind. People are blind. Uh, there was, somebody sent me a TikTok. People are always sending me TikToks. I'm not on TikTok, but I keep seeing them. And I saw a TikTok this week of a teacher, and this man, obviously, he had to set the camera up, you know, because you got 
if it doesn't happen on social media, it doesn't happen. And so he set the camera up, and he, he was a teacher. He, he's telling his students that he's coming out as non-binary. He's non-binary now. Don't, don't ask me to explain non-binary to you. Don't ask this man to explain non-binary to you because it's nonsensical. It really, is, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but he says, you know, my name is not Mr. whatever his name is, Mr. Smith anymore. My name is Zoa. You can call me Mr. Zoa or Miss Zoa or Mix, M-X, Zoa. And the whole class erupted in praise for this man's confusion. This is the world. I could give you hundreds of examples where the world has just been flipped upside down on its head. Makes absolutely no sense. And people are so confident of their insanity. Am I, am I telling the truth? And it's frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating. I don't know how to respond to a lot of this stuff. Do you laugh? Do you cry? Do you cuss? Do you fight? What do you do? Do you run and hide? I think this passage gives us a little bit of clarity in how to navigate interacting with spiritually blind people. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is Peter and Andrew's hometown. A lot of stuff's happened, a lot of history, but this is a very personal place to Peter and Andrew. We're going to come back to that thought, so hold on to it. Uh, they brought a blind man to him. They, speaking of just the blind man's friends, they take him by the hand, they lead him to where Jesus is, and they beg Jesus to touch him. Now, blindness was very common in the ancient world. It didn't take much for an infection to turn into pink eye to turn into blindness. It didn't take much for that to happen at all, so there's a lot of blind people. In this day and age, if somebody was blind, they were considered to be cursed by God. You remember the story in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a, a man who was born blind. And the, the whole encounter it began with the disciples asking Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? You remember this story. So that was the assumption. If somebody was blind or if they had some sort of physical ailment or disease, that they or their family had done something terribly wrong and they were being punished by God. So they were cursed. And so in this culture, in this day and age, you didn't touch cursed people. You didn't touch unclean people. If you touched a cursed person, guess what? You're cursed. And so in Jewish culture, especially, you stayed far, far away from anybody that was blind, anybody that was leprosy, anybody that had some sort of physical, they were mute, they couldn't speak, they couldn't walk. You stayed away from those people because they had a curse on them. You didn't want that curse. But what do we see over and over and over again? These people ask Jesus to touch him. And what does Jesus do? Touches them. Jesus didn't have to touch people. You remember Jairus' daughter? Jesus is in a whole other town, and he heals this, this girl. He doesn't even go into the town. He didn't have to do it. But for some reason, over and over and over again, Jesus chooses to heal people by touching them. Mark chapter 1, verse 31. Uh, this is, this is kind of how it all began, especially for Peter. Think about how personal this was. His mother-in-law had a fever. Jesus comes into the room. What does he say? What does it say? He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, healed by touch. Mark chapter 1, verse 40, this is a man who has leprosy. Leprosy, open sores all over his body. His skin is being, being just eaten away. He's, he's withering away. This is a person, if we saw him face to face, we would have a hard time touching this person. Understand that. We would be repulsed. We would stay definitely at least six foot away. But what does it say here? Mark chapter 1, verse 40, moved with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand. He didn't have to do this and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be clean. Everyone wanted to touch Jesus. 
Mark chapter 3, verse 10, he healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. In Mark chapter 5, we read the story of the woman who had the, the issue of blood. She'd been to every doctor. She spent all of her money. She didn't get better. She got worse. But Jesus came to her town, and she thought to herself, if I can just push through this crowd and do what? Touch just the hem of his garment, I will be made well. And so she does. What happens? Just a little bit. That's all it took. Immediately, the disease left her. Mark chapter 6, verse 56. The crowd begged him that they might touch just the end of his robe, and everyone who touched it was healed. All that to say this. There is power in the physical touch. You know that. You know that, especially if you have kids. How many of you have kids and sometimes they have a nightmare? Just me, okay. My kids have nightmares. Now, when they have nightmares, you can't talk any sense into them, right? You cannot convince them. The mommy is not real, okay? He's not coming back to life. He's dead. He's dead, dead. There's no such thing as a monster living underneath your bed. You don't have to be scared of those things. You cannot reason with your kids after they've had a nightmare. You know the only thing that helps to hold them. That's it. It's the physical touch. It's powerful. Haven't you been in a situation before? You were at the funeral home. You were at the hospital, and you were holding it together, but then one certain person showed up, and they didn't say anything, but they came over and they gave you a hug and immediately you broke down. Just the emotion came. There's power in the physical touch. If you're married, you know this to be true because you have an argument with your spouse and then eventually you decide you don't hate each other anymore. And usually when you make up, there's a physical touch and it's powerful. Am I right? Jesus touched people to heal them. He didn't have to. He made the choice. James encourages the elders to lay hands on the sick person in prayer. Christ gave us the physical emblems of bread and wine to represent his body and his blood. There's something about it. Now, that's why I can't get behind the way some Christians have responded to this pandemic. I can't get behind grandparents not being allowed to hold their grandchildren for over a year. I can't get behind that. I can't get behind hospitals not allowing their family members in to see their dying relatives. I can't get behind that. I can't get behind churches that have not had in-person service for over a year and a half. I can't get behind that because there is something powerful about the physical touch. There is something powerful about people coming together and being there for each other. There's something powerful that happens that words cannot communicate when people come together. It seems contrary to me when in, through this pandemic we've, we've been so isolated. People are so, and as things are picking up, that's what the temptation is going to be, isolate, social distance. And I understand it to a degree, but it gets extreme. And I think it is not playing, it's not, not God's plan and purpose. I think it's playing right into the devil's hands. It's what I think. When you go up to your brother or your sister in Christ and you try and give them a hug or a handshake or a fist bump and they shrink back from you, I don't think this is of Christ. You know, I don't think that's of Christ. I think what the devil wants is for us to live in fear. I think what the devil wants is for us to isolate. I think what the devil wants is us to look at our fellow human beings, not as somebody that needs to be supported, but as a threat 
I think that's what the devil wants. There's something about the physical touch that's healing and is powerful. Verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand, brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? Now, this is a miracle that's very familiar. If you remember just a few weeks ago, we talked about Mark chapter 7, where Jesus healed the man who uh, was blind and uh, was mute and deaf, couldn't speak, couldn't hear. It's the same type of a miracle. You remember the same kind of events. Jesus took him away from the crowd. Jesus put his fingers in his ears. It was kind of a weird deal. Jesus spit on his tongue, and now all of a sudden this man could speak and he can hear. Same type of miracle. What's interesting about these two miracles is that these two miracles are only recorded in Mark. They're not found in Luke. They're not found in Matthew. Of all the miracles, these are the only two that are in Mark that aren't in Matthew that aren't in Luke. And so it's almost like Matthew, the tax collector, this, these miracles don't really resonate with him. For some reason, he doesn't decide to put it in his biography of Jesus. And then Luke, when he does all of his investigation, these two miracles don't really stand out to him. But when Mark starts to write his biography, you know what his source is? is Peter. And so as Peter is telling Mark what to put in his biography about Jesus, he says to Mark, make sure you put these two in here because for some reason, these two miracles are very important to Peter. We're going to come back to that thought. Jesus takes the man by the hand and leads him out of the village. I want you to just think, I want you to think about how personal Jesus is. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, Jesus isn't like me. I, I can stick my foot in my mouth. Anybody else see that? And so in this situation, I might be tempted to say to the blind man, just follow me, right? Which is kind of hard for a person who can't see. But Jesus instead leads this man, and the only way that he can lead this man, he takes him by the hand. This is the only way Jesus could lead him is to take him by the hand and he leads him to a place away from the crowd. It's personal. It's personal. This isn't something for everybody to see. This is between this man and Jesus. Jesus leads him away to a private place and he spits on his eyes. Spitting is associated with healing. This is a way for this man to to feel that, that Jesus is about to do something powerful in his life. Spitting associated with healing Laying on hands, he heals him. Something about the physical touch. Something about this connection where Jesus makes the physical and the spiritual uh, interact. Connects this. It's something about physically getting up from your chair and walking to this altar and getting on your knees. There's something about it. There's nothing mad. This isn't magical. There's nothing magic about these kneeling pads. But there's something that happens when you physically displace yourself from where you are and you go to this place that represents a place closer to the heart of Jesus. There's something that happens there. There's something that happens when we walk up here and we take this, this, this juice and this bread and then we, we connect this juice and this bread to our Savior, his body and his blood. There's something powerful that happens there. There's something powerful that happens. If you've never done this before, there's some, something powerful that happens when you go down in the water in baptism. And you, you, you confess that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, and then you're buried in that watery grave of baptism. You come back up, you leave yourself down in the water. Something powerful spiritually that happens. Nothing magic about the water. But let me tell you something. It's powerful when you come up out of that water and you feel like this water has made you spiritually clean. Something powerful happens in that moment. Something powerful when people lay hands on you and pray over you. If you've never had that experience before, you're missing out. 
It's something powerful that happens. That's why the Bible says we, we anoint people with oil. There's nothing magical about the oil. The oil represents the Holy Spirit work in your life, but something powerful happens. I think these rituals, these ordinances, these symbols, they're not arbitrary. They're not for nothing. They matter. And we'd all do well to take them more seriously in our life. So many of us, we brush over these things like they don't matter, like they don't make a difference. And I'm telling you, they do. I'm telling you, it does make a difference when people lay hands on you and pray. It does make a difference. I'm telling you, it does make a difference when you really sit down and you think about the body and blood of Christ. I'm telling you, it does make a difference when you get baptized. It's not magic, but it makes a difference. It's powerful. And listen, friends, you can't do that through a computer screen. You can't do that through a computer screen. You can't do that if you're not connected, physically connected to a church body. So many people are missing out. They're missing out on a deep, intimate, personal, powerful connection with Christ because they're trying to do things from a distance trying to do things in their own little comfort room, in their own little comfort zone. Sometimes we've got to step out in faith and put feet to our prayers. Physically, physically step into that space spiritually. Now, we see these physical elements all throughout Jesus' ministry over and over again. He's doing things physically to represent what's happening spiritually but what we see next in this passage, we don't see anywhere else in recorded history. It's not in any of the Gospels we see this next. Jesus says to the man, do you see anything? Verse 24, the man looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And so this is a man. He probably born, he was born with sight. He could see when he was born. Somewhere along the way, he got an infection. He lost his sight. So he knows what a man looks like. He knows what a tree looks like. And so Jesus spits on his eyes. And then the man looks up. Jesus says, can you see anything? The man says, huh? I can, I can see better than I could see. I couldn't see anything before. It was all black, but now I, there's a little bit of light getting in. But, but I see, I know they're men. I know that because I've seen a man before, but they kind of look like trees. And so I'm not all the way there. Verse 25, again, Jesus placed his hands on the man. The man looked intently and his, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So here is the only place in recorded history where we see Jesus have to do a do-over. Now, this is kind of troubling in a way because it's like, okay, well, did, did Jesus fail? Was he not strong enough? Was this, was this blindness like too intense? What happened here that Jesus had to, because every other miracle, the lady touches the hem of Jesus's robe. Immediately, she's made well. Jesus says to the man who, who's paralyzed, he says, pick up your mat and walk. Immediately, the man gets up. He starts dancing around. Jesus, time and time again, he touches somebody. He puts his healing hand on somebody. Immediately, they're made well. But in this story, in this one alone, Jesus has to heal him. He has to put his hands on him twice. What's going on here? Was Jesus weak from travel? Was it that this man's faith was weak? Was it that the blindness was just so intense? I believe that Jesus chose to heal this man in two stages. This was intentional. I'm going to show you why I think that as we continue. Verse 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was heavily influenced by Rome. It was Hellenized. 
And so what you see in Caesarea Philippi, you see a ton of temples, temples to all the Greek gods. The major god there in Caesarea Philippi was the god Pan. So there was a temple there to the god of nature. And so they would worship things that look like trees and, you know, all the elemental forces. There was also a new temple in, in the time of Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, a temple to a new god, the Roman emperor. And so this is a place where people are worshiping the Roman emperor. They're worshiping trees and they're worshiping government. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? And so this is where they are. And the the disciples have this in the backdrop. They've just seen a deaf man, a mute man healed, and now they can speak and hear again. They've just seen a blind man healed, and now he can clearly see again. And they have the pantheon of the gods in the background. And Jesus asked them a very interesting question in light of all these things. He asked him, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. I find it interesting to think about the people who saw Jesus face to face. They saw the miracles. They heard all the teachings. What did they think about him? People today, they say of Jesus that he was a great teacher, a spiritual guru, a powerful humanitarian. Some people say he was crazy. Some people say he was a con man. Some people say he's a legend. In Jesus's day, they said of Jesus, he was a sinner, a friend of sinners. They said that he did work by the power of Satan. But by and large, when people thought of Jesus, they thought of him as a powerful prophet. By and large, the the general population, when they thought about Jesus, they thought, well, maybe he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Maybe he's Elijah, the man that never died. Maybe he's come back to earth. The crowd, the people, they see Jesus in the same way the blind man sees men walking around looking like trees. Do you see the connection? You see why these stories are back to back? Now we're starting to make sense. Why why is Jesus having to do this in two stages? See, they, they, they see a distorted vision of Jesus's identity. They're they're moving in the right direction. This is a man of God. This is a powerful prophet, but they don't see it clearly. Not yet, anyway. Now, I want you to think about this. If the people who saw Jesus in the flesh, they heard him teach, they saw the miracles. If they had a hard time clearly clearly seeing Jesus's identity, what hope do we have? What hope do the people of this world have? If they had a hard time, they saw him face to face. What about us 2,000 years later? Verse 29, but you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Now, understand, this is the pinnacle of the gospel of Mark. Everything through the first eight chapters in the gospel of Mark has been leading up to this moment. And everything after this is building off of this moment. Everything up to this moment, all the miracles, Jesus fighting the demons, Jesus walking on water, Jesus feeding 5,000, Jesus teaching all the things he's teaching, it's all leading to this moment where he asks this question, after all you've seen, who do you say that I am? And then everything after this is building off their statement of faith. Here's the confirmation of what you believe. Who do you say that I am? That is the most important question anybody can answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Verse 29 continued, Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. 
So Peter had just witnessed Jesus putting his fingers in the deaf man's ear and spitting on his tongue, and now the deaf man can hear. Peter had just witnessed Jesus spitting in the blind man's eyes and making him see. The whole time Jesus is performing these type of miracles where he unstops their ears and opens their eyes, the whole time he's doing these miracles, Jesus is also asking his disciples, do you have ears and not hear? Do you have eyes and not see? Is your heart so hardened? Jesus is prodding them the whole time. He's doing these object lessons because he wants them to see spiritually your eyes are still closed. Spiritually, your ears are still stopped up. And now Jesus leads Peter through his hometown. Now there's a personal connection. His heart is opening up. He's in his comfort zone. He leads him the only way he can be led through his hometown. And then he leads him to the pinnacle of all these pantheon of gods. And there Jesus is in the foreground. In the background, you see the the temple to the Roman emperor. You see the temple to nature. And then Jesus stands in the middle. He says, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, this is spelled out a little bit more clearly, parallel passage. Simon Peter answered Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so Peter After seeing all he's seen, Jesus is leading him just along in the the way that Peter needed to be led. At the end of it, Jesus asked him the question, who do you say I am? And Peter says, now I see. You're the promised one. You're the one that they've been hoping would come. You're the one who's going to make everything right. You're the salvation of the world. You are God in the flesh, and I worship you. A couple of takeaways from this passage. Number one, spiritual sight comes in stages. I think that's why Jesus healed this man in two stages because he wanted, he wanted to kind of set an object lesson that, that Peter and the disciples, they were with Jesus for eight chapters in Mark, two and a half years, and they still didn't clearly see it. They, they started to see it like a man, but looked like a tree walking around. And then eventually, eventually, after another, enough interaction, after enough of Jesus touching their eyes spiritually so that they could see, eventually they saw Jesus clearly for who he really is. We're born blind. We have an enemy trying to keep us blind. We're tightly bound in blindness. Our only hope is that Jesus will open our eyes. That's our only hope. And so this is what I would encourage you to do. Cut people some slack. Cut yourself some slack. Every believer and every future believer is somewhere between confusing a man with a tree and seeing Jesus in 2020 vision. We're somewhere along that journey. You are a work in progress. And guess what? Jesus is okay with that. The people that you interact with all day, every day, and they should know better because you told them a million times and you're trying to bang your head up against the wall dealing with these people and it's so frustrating, you don't know whether to laugh or cry or cut them. You don't know what to do. (laughs) Cut them some slack. They're a work in progress, just like you. And guess what? Jesus is okay with that. In the church, we need to be anti-cancel culture. Isn't cancel culture huge in our day and age? Uh, The uh, Ken Jennings was going to be Jeopardy's next host. You guys familiar with this? He's the one that won all the money. He like knows all the answers. 
Uh, he was going to be Jeopardy's next host. And then some, so they found something that he said like 20 years ago, or he tweeted tw- forever ago, and they brought it out. And then he got fired, and he had to do a public apology. And now he has cultural leprosy. You can't get anywhere near Ken Jennings, because that's the way it works. A mistake from years and years ago. Or maybe not even a mistake, just something that was said that, was, that, was, that is true, but now all of a sudden because of woke progressivism and secularism, it's, it's sinful to say those kind of things in public. And so now he's canceled. So where we live in, guess what? Winchester's been canceling people as long as I've been alive. You know why? Because we're a small town. And guess what? In a small town, everybody knows everybody, right? They know all your junk. They know all your history. They know exactly what you did in high school. And people in Winchester do not forget. They do not forget, and they do not forgive. It's part of our culture. It's part of our DNA. We need to reject that. There's going to be people that walk through that back door, and you're going to know them. You're going to know them from high school. And in high school, they were a punk, you know, and they would say hateful things about everybody. Or they were on drugs, and they'd go and steal stuff from people. Or they hit your car in the parking lot. They didn't tell you, and they drove off. Or they cheated on your best friend with your other best friend. And you got all, you got a list of reasons not to like this person. And they're going to walk through that back door, and you're going to be tempted to turn a cold shoulder. You're going to be tempted to stick your nose up in the air and act like you're better than that person. But let me say two things about that person that comes through the door. Even if they're still living that same kind of life, even if they were in drugs on high school and they're still on drugs, guess what? What better place for them to be than right here? Right? Isn't that what we want? Now, listen, listen, we can't have the blind leading the blind, okay? So there's a certain space we got to be exclusive. When it comes to the leaders of our church, we do have to be exclusive because we can't have the blind leaving the line. But as far as people coming and hearing the word, hearing the gospel, trying to get, having that connection, that personal connection with Jesus, everybody's welcome to sit in these chairs. Everybody is. Here's the other thing. So that's number one. What better place for a sinner to be than right here? Number two, it's been 20 years. Isn't it possible Isn't it possible Jesus got their hands on this person between back then and now? Isn't that possible that they've changed? Why don't we cut some people some slack? Why don't we cut people some slack? Why don't we give Jesus some time to work in their life? Because spiritual sight comes in stages. You're not who you used to be, right? You're not who you used to be, and you're not who you will be. It's in stages. It's in stages. Cut people some slack. Cut people some slack. What do you do with these people? Well, you can take a big Bible and you can attach a handle to it and you can beat them upside the head until you knock some sense into them. You can try it. I've tried it before. It doesn't work very well. You can craft an all-cat social media post and just set them all straight at once. You can try that one too. (laughs) This is what we need to do, friends. Take them by the hand as personally as you connect with these people, lead them to Jesus and pray that God opens their eyes. That's the strategy. You take them by the hand. I've got a personal connection with these people I'm ministering to. I know their name. I know their story. I know what's going on in their life because I've asked them. I care about them. And so I'm holding them by the hand and I'm as as personally as I can, I'm trying to connect them to Jesus. 
I say the name Jesus Christ as much as I can because there's power in that name. I tell them my testimony. I'm sharing the word with them. I'm inviting them to church. I'm doing all I can because I want them to be in the proximity of where Jesus is. And the whole time I'm praying, God, I need you to open their eyes. That's our strategy. That's the way it works. So that leads me to my, my second takeaway. Spiritual sight comes from God. Spiritual sight comes from God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus responded, Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. Your teacher didn't reveal it to you. Your preacher didn't reveal it to you. It wasn't that video you watched on Facebook that revealed it to you. It was God the Father who revealed this truth to you. I want you to think about this. This blind man that the friends brought to Jesus, what did the blind man do to receive his sight? What did he do? The friends led him to Jesus. The friends asked Jesus to touch the man. Jesus spit on his eyes. Jesus laid hands on him. What did the man do? He stood there. That's it. That's it. When it comes to your enlightenment, when it comes to your spiritual awakening, when it comes to your salvation, you are not a participant. You are a recipient. It wasn't about your effort. It wasn't about your sincerity. It wasn't about anything that you did. Jesus took you by the hand. He met you in your hometown. He took you by the hand. He led you in the most personal way, the only way you could be led. He led you to a place where you could see a comparison between all the gods of the world and Jesus Christ. And then he laid hands on you and he said just the right words in just the right way at just the right time so that finally your eyes would be open and you would make that proclamation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and I will worship you. Jesus did the work. Jesus opened your eyes, not the other way around. Not flesh and blood. It was the Father in heaven. And so here's the thing. When you think about that, what was Jesus' response to Peter? You are blessed. This is what I know. I look around and I see eyes that are heavy. I see shoulders that are burdened because our world is hard. People in this room right now, you are struggling and you are dealing with things that nobody else knows about. And there's part of you that feels cursed, but I want you to know today in Jesus name, you are not cursed. You are blessed. You are blessed. And you say, I don't feel like I'm blessed because my marriage is falling apart and I'm sick as a dog and I don't have any money and I don't have any friends and I don't know how this is going to get better, but I want you to know, you know Jesus, so you are blessed. You know the Savior of the world. You know the one who's going to make everything right. You know the promise keeper. You know the way maker. You know the one who's going to come back and put all of his enemies as a footstool and put you in the place that he created you to be. You know the one. He opened your eyes to it. You could still be walking in darkness. You could still be walking without any hope and out any joy, without any peace. But instead, he's filled you with the Holy Spirit. And so you are not a victim, my friend. You are a victor. 
You're blessed. You're blessed. And so what's our response to that? Jesus said to the blind man, don't even go into the village, go home. Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, they make the right proclamation. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Why? Well, the story wasn't over. It was just part. Just part of the gospel. Jesus didn't want to be known as just a miracle worker. He didn't just want to be known as a healer. He wanted the world to see that he is the savior, that he is the son of God. We, though, on the other side of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We know the full story. And so what's the proper response to the fact that you're so blessed, that your eyes have been opened? What's the proper response? To go and shine that light into all the world. Jesus has said to you, go and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so this is the only proper response that you go out into this world. You take your friends and your family who are still blind, who are still living in darkness. You take them by the hand and you speak Jesus into their life and you pray with all your heart that God will open their eyes. That you give glory to God. Because here's the thing, man. When people's eyes are open. The more blind they are, guess what? The more glory God gets. There's so many people in this world you've given up on. You've said they're too far gone. I want you to know there is still hope for that person. Don't give up. Keep shining the light in the darkness, and eventually the light will push back the darkness. And guess what? At that point, Jesus gets all the honor, glory, and praise. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the way you love us. Lord, I pray that we'll respond accordingly to this message. Lord, if we have been one who cancels instead of corrects, forgive us. Lord, we don't want to cancel people. We don't want to shoot people off just because they don't see things as clearly as we see them, Lord. Instead, help us to take them by the hand and bring them closer to you. Lord, if there's any person in this room who's struggling, help them to come. Bring their request, bring their, their need to the altar. If there's any person in this room who's far from you, who's never received Jesus, never confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray today they'll do that as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen.